Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. I initially started producing this podcast as a COVID project, and to fill a need, I thought that the podcasting world was missing. Simply looking at each warbird as a distinct entity from conception to museum. I wanted to listen to that kind of show, and it just wasn't out there, so I made it myself. If you enjoy the program, and it fills a part of your day, whether during a drive or listening to the, in quotes, airplane news with your kids, please consider supporting. It's super easy through PayPal at WOWB17, and you will get a shout out. Thank you to Stan L. Marcus, Alan Bieber, Greg Side, and Russell Goff for their recent help and especially Dale Longmere for being a longtime super supporter. Okay, let's get on to the show, which is a suggestion from Matt Robertson in the UK. It's taken a while, but here it is. Design and development. Some warbirds are generalists and end up doing many tasks. I was recently revisiting the Bowfighter episode, and it amazed me once more just how this one aircraft with modifications could be a fighter, bomber, night fighter, torpedo bomber, and rocket ground attack plane. But on the other hand, some aircraft are designed for a very specific purpose, and the Mitsubishi J2M Raiden is one of them. For much of the war, Japanese naval aviation had the offensive purpose of reaching out and projecting power over the wide ranges of China and the Pacific. If you look at the A6M Zero, the D3A Val, the Mitsubishi Nell and Betty, and the Nakajima B5N, known as Kate by the Allies, these were all designed with that in mind. But, as early as 1937, the Japanese Navy land-based air units had felt the effects of attacks by Chinese bombers, and the present fighters that they had on hand at the time were not fast enough to defend these facilities. In 1938, the Imperial Japanese Navy, or IJN's Aviation Division, began discussions with Mitsubishi, and on September 12, 1939, Mitsubishi received an unofficial order for a 12-she interceptor. Yiro Horikoshi, Mitsubishi's chief designer and the father of the A6M Zero, was tasked to design the new fighter. As a local defense interceptor, the new fighter would be pretty much the opposite of the Zero. The Zero's strengths were extreme long range and highly nimble maneuverability with compromises in pilot protection and armament. The new interceptor would need wild climb performance, high speed, and enhanced armament in order to quickly claw its way to altitude, attack with enough heavy weaponry to destroy a bomber, and then get out. In designing the interceptor, Horikoshi started by looking at engines. Initially, he was looking at a liquid-cooled engine, Daiichi AEA Atsuta, which was the Japanese-licensed version of the Daimler-Benz DB601A. This was a 12-cylinder inverted V engine. 
He liked this liquid-cooled inline engine as it would give him the kind of high performance he needed, as could be seen in the fighters such as the German Messerschmitt BF-109 and especially the British Supermarine Spitfire, which was also meant as an interceptor. But in April 1940, the IJN finally wrote up the official order for the interceptor, and here it is. Single seat, single wing, interceptor fighter. Maximum speed was to be at least 372 miles per hour, and it had to reach 20,000 feet in five and a half minutes. It needed to be able to take off from a 1,000 foot airstrip. For armament, they wanted two 7.7 machine guns with 500 rounds each, two 20mm cannons with 60 rounds, and the ability to carry two 60-pound bombs. The bomb thing seems to go against the whole idea of the concept of the interceptor, but maybe they were looking forward to the idea of bombing aircraft formations. Or maybe it was just an in-case thing. I'm not sure. Oh yeah. The Navy also specified that an air-cooled engine must be installed. Damn. So, Horikoshi scrapped his plans for using the liquid-cooled Atsukta and instead selected the Mitsubishi Kasei, which means Mars in Japanese, engine to power his interceptor. It was a two-row, 14-cylinder air-cooled radial engine. During its development, versions of the engine generated impressive 1530 to 1850 horsepower. One drawback to the Kasai engine was that at 55 inches, it had a rather large diameter, definitely wider than the inline engine that he had been pondering. Like all radials, it presented a greater face to the airflow and thus created more drag than was desired. Horikoshi attempted to solve the problem by burying the fat engine behind a long and streamlined cowling, connecting it to the propeller with an extension shaft. Burying the engine solved the drag problem, and actually the resulting sleek fighter looks like it is powered by a turboprop rather than a fat radial. But, and you knew that there would be a but, right? The problem was that this powerful, air-cooled engine was now placed where it wouldn't get an easy, free supply of cooling air. So Horikoshi installed an intake fan, very much like the FW-190, in order to supply the engine with cooling airflow. Prototypes it took a while for Horikoshi and Mitsubishi to get the prototype off the drawing board and onto the runway. The main reason for the delay was that they were very occupied with engineering for the many updates to the Zero Fighter. But finally, in February 1942, the new Interceptor, now with the official designation J2M1, took to the skies with Mitsubishi test pilot Shima Katsuzo at the controls. By May, IGN pilots took over the test flights. Although the aircraft flew well, speed and climbing were disappointing. And these were kind of the most important elements requested. Other annoyances were that the forward visibility was bad. They found that the aircraft was tricky to land. And that was if the landing gear mechanism actually worked, which sometimes it didn't. Horikoshi went back to the drawing board. The second prototype had many changes to try to alleviate the problems of the J2M1. 
The first was to swap in a more powerful Cassay 23A engine, which produced about 400 more horsepower than the previous Cassay 13. This engine had a water methanol injection system, and so the tankage for that was included. The new bigger engine drove a new four-blade constant speed propeller. I actually had found it strange that the first fighter had been installed with a fixed propeller, which is kind of like driving a car with only one gear. As the new engine was heavier, they had to install it further aft to maintain the center of gravity, and so shortened the cowling by 8 inches. This, and the enlargening of the windshield and raising of the pilot's seat would hopefully help with the visibility problem. To help with the landing characteristics, the flaps were enlarged. Lastly, more powerful cannon were added. The second prototype, called the J2M2, flew in October of 1942, and the new, more muscular version could basically climb as required, getting to 20,000 feet in 5 minutes 38 seconds, rather than the 5 minutes 30 seconds requested. But the speed was still about 20 miles per hour short. Other complaints were that the water methanol injection system left a trail of black smoke, which isn't great as it points you out as you're trying to sneak up on a bomber formation. Also, the beefy engine produced a major vibration which was seriously annoying to the pilots. Two test pilots were killed in crashes during the testing program. Production. With the type still being a problem child, and an especially bad problem child that actually killed test pilots. It might seem a little hasty to begin production, but a series of cascading events and effects had brought about a dire need for an interceptor defense for the Japanese home islands. On the 18th of April 1942, the Japanese capital city of Tokyo was subjected to the audacious air raid by U.S. Army B-25 medium bombers, known as the Doolittle Raid, after its commander, Jimmy Doolittle. Rather than do little, this raid actually did a lot. Although the material damage caused by the bombers was pretty light, it did reveal to Japanese leadership for the first time that their island country could be vulnerable to air attack. In order to try to eliminate this vulnerability, Japanese forces attempted to throw up a wide, long-range barrier of Pacific Ocean space to protect their homeland. The Battle of Midway was one of these attempts, and unfortunately for the Japanese, it was a failing one. For greater insight into both the Doolittle Raid and the Battle of Midway, I would invite you to listen to my episodes on the A6M0, the B-25, the SBD Dauntless, and the TBD Devastator. So these two events, plus knowledge of the impending threat of the B-29 Super Bomber, brought about the need for an interceptor fighter to help protect the homeland. So in spite of the continuing teething problems, the interceptor was given a name, Raiden, or Lightning Bolt, and rushed into production, even though Mitsubishi would continue tinkering on the type right up until the end. The Allies called the aircraft Jack. Before we look at operational history, I'd like to take a short minute to tell you about Magic Mind. You all know that podcasting is not my day job, and so I get up very early to work on these episodes. I've been trying to cut back on coffee, and lately my family and I have been trying a product called Magic Mind. 
I've really noticed a positive difference, even though I'm always doubtful on these kind of claims. I just take one yummy shot in the morning, and the matcha, which is a green tea, helps extend the effects of my morning coffee to give me longer-lasting alertness. And this stuff is really delicious. The other components help to increase physical and mental endurance, and most importantly for we over 40 folks, it enhances mental clarity. I find I don't even need my usual afternoon coffee anymore for a pick-me-up. And it doesn't impact my sleep at all. My wife is happy as these shots contain turmeric, which I know is good for me, but I dislike it. And you don't even taste it at all in these shots. Magic Mind has created a special offer for me to share with you warbirders. You get up to 56% off your first subscription in the next 10 days and 20% off your one-time purchase with the code WARBIRDS20. You can get it at magicmind.com warbirds and redeem the discount code WARBIRDS20. But hurry up, the 56% discount only lasts 10 days from our episode airing date. Look for the link in the program notes and on all the Warbirds socials. So now on to operational history. Operating the Jack must have been a very frustrating endeavor. For even though the aircraft climbed like a homesick angel, it had some truly devilish tendencies. The engine was so powerful for the airframe that during full power run-ups, it could overturn because the engine was so strong. To counteract this, either weights or ground crew members had to ride on each horizontal stabilizer. Forward visibility was still bad, requiring zigzagging during taxiing. During takeoff, the nose had a very nasty swing, requiring serious attention on the rudder pedals. Training accidents were common. Although it was great in a climb, the type was not good in a dogfight. And so if a jack pilot got into a turning fight, he was often toast. Also, the pilot did not have much time for dogfighting as the Raiden did not carry much fuel. Without drop tanks, he had about 40 minutes total. Although some earlier versions were distributed to the fighting forces piecemeal, the 381st Kokutai was the first unit to be organized around the Raiden in October 1943. Tasked with protecting the oil fields of Borneo, it seemed the perfect job for this interceptor fighter. It must have been truly maddening to the pilots and leadership when, after four months, only 10 Raiden had been delivered to this unit, which was supposed to be operating with at least 36. Additionally, in January, during a gunnery training exercise... That engine vibration problem that we had discussed earlier caused the failure of an engine mount. The loose engine disintegrated the aircraft and killed the pilot. Due to this accident and delays in obtaining new machines, the 381st traded in whatever Raidens they had for Zeros. If the Raiden was supposed to be the Japanese Spitfire, then the American B-29 raids were their Battle of Britain, and it should have been their finest hour. Although the raid units did get kills, they were operating at extremes. The B-29s operated at such high altitudes and speeds that they were very difficult to intercept, and then have sufficient fuel to actually attack. Depending on what direction they arrived, 
Sometimes the Raiden pilots would have insufficient fuel to get back to their bases after the attack, and they'd have to bail out. At least they were over friendly territory. At the extreme altitudes, the Raidens also had a drop of performance, and although Mitsubishi built two experimental models with turbo superchargers installed in the side fuselage of the fighter, they could never get it to work properly. Another experiment was to sometimes install an oblique firing 20mm cannon in the rear fuselage that would rake the B-29's belly as the Raiden flew underneath the bomber. If they could get properly positioned for a firing run, the Raiden's four cannon could and did definitely bring down B-29s. The usual attack technique was to approach from head-on 3,000 feet above the bomber formation. When the lead bomber was 30 degrees below the horizon as viewed by the Raiden pilot, he would snap roll inverted and dive, which would place him in a position to fire on the bomber at 12 o'clock low. Bringing down B-29s was not easy though, and reading over battle reports from the various Kokutai tasked with protecting the homeland, I see that often one or more B-29s in the mass formations would be reported to be killed, but many more would continue on, escaping trailing white smoke. They were tough birds, those B-29s. And the Raiden took casualties too, and as previously mentioned, often were obliged to bail out or crash land following their firing runs. When the B-29s switched to night attacks, the troublesome Raiden became almost useless. They had no radar, and their visibility hadn't been great even in the daytime. Production also wasn't keeping up with losses, and worsened due to the very bombing that the Raiden were loath to stop. It is noteworthy that Raiden participated in one of the very last air battles of World War II, when four Raiden and eight Zeros bounced a formation of U.S. Navy F-6F Hellcats from the aircraft carrier USS Yorktown on the morning of 15th August 1945. They knocked down four Hellcats, losing two Raiden and two Zeros in the process. Two hours later, Japan surrendered. Survivors as far as I know, the only surviving Raiden is a static J2M3 on display at the Plains of Fame Museum in Chino, California. It served with the 302 Kokutai at Atsugi, and after the Japanese surrender, it was shipped to the USA for testing. After a second life as an instructional airframe at a trade school, and a third life as an attraction at a train museum of all things, it was finally donated to the museum where it most certainly belongs. Thanks again to all who support the podcast via PayPal at WOWB17. And if you haven't, please consider. I support the podcast that I listen to. If you'd like to watch as well as listen, check out the YouTube channel. You can also check out some photos of what we have been talking about today on the Facebook page. Until next time. World of Warbirds is researched, written, and recorded by me, Brian Pierce. The music is the Royal Canadian Air Force March Past. Thanks for listening.